You're listening to The Lost Art of Liner Notes, a podcast by Rumble Yard. You can find more episodes of this show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Recently, we caught up with St. Lucia and invited them to sit down with Justin Eshack of Columbia Records to discuss making their new album, Hyperion. Hi, uh, my name is Justin Ishak. I do A&R for Columbia Records, and I'm here with Jean and Patty, and their baby, and Indy, and their baby Indy. He feels left out right now. Right, who's thematically very important to the uh, narrative of this record. Yeah. But uh, hi, guys. Hi. Hey, how you doing, man? Good to see you again. Good to have you back in the uh, in Pandora's box. Well, when I was on my way here, I realized that the studio now has a name, which I don't think it had a name. Oh, Shotzi Studio. It always had a name, yeah. but it wasn't wasn't like advertised because it just right. seems like such a shithole. Like, right. why would this have a name? You know. Well, I just remember coming here for the first time and it being like eight thousand degrees <laughs> in the yes. studio. Yes, but and we I was have in the Ferrari middle, I, now. Was that a year ago? I think that's probably about a year ago. It was about it a year ago that we started like the, mm-hmm. the recording and stuff like that. So this is your third album. Yes. Third full length album, but it's the first one that we worked on together, mm-hmm. um, which was it was a pretty exciting for me. The person who had worked with you previously had left the company, and so I got to step in and work with you guys, which I was excited about because I'd always been a fan of your music. I still remember the first time I saw you guys play, which was I had heard your name a little bit, sort of bouncing around, and I don't you probably would know the year better than me, but I was down at South by Southwest, and it was sort of this outdoor show as part of the neon gold, like oh, the neon yeah. gold party. 2012, 2013? 2012, I think. Yeah. Or 13. That probably sounds about right. Yeah. But all I know is like the songs and the way that you guys are making music, to me it just seemed very, way too ambitious for the small room in which you were playing. <laughs> and I think you guys have, have developed a, a real sort of reputation as a bit of a live band. And I think we can kind of start there because one of the original thoughts on this album was like, how do we sort of create that excitement or recreate that excitement that exists in the live shows and sort of transport that onto a recording. And I think that a lot of things started there. But, I mean, maybe we can talk about first sort of the the overall sort of mission statement or thesis, because there was a lot of talk that, you know, what you were trying to accomplish with this album even before you started. So, yeah, so I, I think you touched on something that was like a big guiding force on this record for me was that, you know, I just, I didn't really know where to go after the last record. Um, I like to always challenge ourselves and to feel like we're moving forward in some kind of way because all of my favorite bands and artists have done that. It always felt like with each album was like a brand new discovery of who they were and how do they reflect who they are now as people in their music. But the way I sort of started it, I feel, was um, by asking a lot of my friends and just people whose opinions I really care about like if they were to change anything about St. Lucia or if they could say like what they want would want the next St. Lucia record to be, what that would be. And a lot of them said that they wish that we would sort of capture the live energy more. And I've, I've heard other people say that as well. And then a lot of people were also like, there would be some moments that were less just like straight up bombastic and kind mm-hmm. of a little more intimate, which I think we had. I mean, I think like on matter, like love somebody was like a very intimate, like not super bombastic song. 
But I think just in general, we're sort of somehow known as this like very kind of like extroverted, like bombastic. It's because you're band. also a perfectionist, John. And like you, when you write music, you usually want everything in it. It's like layers upon layers upon layers. And, and like, if you don't do something that... I think it's maybe if more you don't overcompensation. Try, no, if you don't try something, I feel like you feel like you haven't tried enough. And You know what I mean? So I think we end up with these massive songs because you want to do everything. Yeah. So it was like a bit of a challenge to sort of reel it back a bit. But I think that was also the Baby idea life. behind it as well, just to simplify it a little bit. Right. I think what I just started realizing was that I'm obviously very, very proud of our first two records, but, you know, they were sort of made in situations where, like, we couldn't, like, afford to take the whole band to a studio for, like, a month and record all together in a room just because of the way everything's structured in the band. And so I was sort of trying to get the same effect as that by doing it sort of myself, you know? And I think by doing that, I sort of... I'm almost trying to like compensate for the fact that there isn't this like live band performance at the mm. core of the thing. And I think that was sort of happening on the first two records. And I think th those records are what they needed to be, but I wanted to move more towards like my ideal that I had in the back of my mind on this record. And that's where we sort of went into this idea of sort of recording it more as sort of a band together in, in a room. Because I think... There is inherently when when a group of people play together and they're dialed in in a certain way, you sort of become more than the sum of your parts right. in some kind of way. I think the seed of me thinking that maybe we should do this together as a band in the studio, like the recording of the album, came from we were playing this show in Nashville last year, and um, I just sort of had the, this idea hit me. I was like, why don't we see if there's like a studio that's open late tonight and has space and that we can just go do like a full band jam in the studio. And the first studio I called was this um, studio called Welcome to 1979. That's like an all tape recording studio. And I was like, hey, do you guys by any chance have like an open late night session? And literally they were the first studio I called and they had the space and I convinced the band to come and we just went after the show and did this like late night jam. And um, something interesting happened where I just realized like we'd never done that as a band, you know, just because I think the way that the band structures, it's just like a little weird because it's my solo project, but you know, the guys who play in the band are more than just session musicians. They're a big part of the whole thing. And that was the first time that we tried this thing where we sort of threw caution to the wind and some like really interesting, cool stuff came out of that. And it made me think about what that process could lend to some of the songs that I'd been writing for the record. So what were you into when you started making this? Album. This record. Yeah, I mean, I remember you and I talking about some of the records that were really influencing you. Yeah, um, I mean, I know it's kind of corny to, like, for your, like, biggest influences to be, like, the greats in a way because it seems so obvious. But I was, I've just always been very um, inspired by artists that are kind of, like, trying to reach for something that's greater than than who they are in a way and who are aren't trying to be like super alternative and alienating to their fans, but also aren't trying to fully sell out into some like pop extreme vision where they're sort of somewhere in the middle of that because in a way, I think that's the hardest thing to balance is being communicative to like a wide group of people, but also keeping it personal and keeping it like interesting in some mm -hmm. kind of way. And I'm, I've just always been very interested in that. And like, you know, I think of Prince, I think of U2, I think of R.E.M., I think of... Peter Gabriel, I think of 
So it was a lot of those bands. I mean, Radiohead as well, of course. Right. Um, and I just did, I did so much research into like how a lot of those records were were made. And I realized that the biggest sort of joining factor between those records was, was literally that most of those records were recorded by the band playing together in a room. And it was just like the universe in some way was telling me that I had to do it that way on some level. We talked about that a bunch. I know when you first started making this record where you're, you're a bit of a romantic. <laughs> and um, I think that you would sort of look at these records and obviously you're a student, then you look at how they were made. And the juxtaposition to that was how most records are being made nowadays, which yeah. is, you know, an artist goes into a studio sort of in Los Angeles with some co-writers and they try to knock out, you know, a song in a day or two. And then you might cobble something together, 10 songs based on how the sessions went. And you said, I, I don't want to do any of that. Yeah. You know, I want to get the songs, get them tight and then get the band together and record, which, yeah. you know, obviously until about 15 years ago was how records had been made and I think that's how you got things that were a bit more singular and I know that you really aim to accomplish that on this album and I think you really achieved that. I'm not against that pervading approach right now because I've done it and mm -hmm. I think I had some success out of it and mm -hmm. but just like something I just think I'm like a contrarian by nature and I always naturally am drawn to doing things differently to how I feel like I perceive most people to be doing them at that time right. and there was something where I feel like if I just look at like most music in the world today, I don't see much of a like personal artistic expression happening from most artists. Because I think every artist kind of like, there's things you see about yourself, but there's things you don't see about yourself that are sort of in the blind spot about who you are. And I think it takes someone from the outside to come in and kind of like see that. And that's where I think like Rob, for example, was like an amazing addition to making right. this record because he saw things that were good about this album that I just would not have known. And he knew to sort of like to focus on certain things that I just would never have chosen to focus on, you know? Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, yeah. basically you, you sort of get the ball 30 yards down the field because you're able to do so many things. You're what they would call like a 100 percenter, right? Like yeah. someone who can who can write and record and perform and everything. But I also um, get in my way like a lot. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the case oftentimes with people like you is that because of that, you can kind of get in your own head and you might need somebody to sort of pull you out a little bit. So then we ended up engaging a guy named Rob Kirwan mm -hmm. to to sort of come in and just be another another creative voice sort of in the room. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so like you said, you know, I I can pretty much like play and do most things in the studio. It's like I said, you know, I think someone just doing everything by themselves, I think that you just in the end you get to a place where you can't see the wood for the trees anymore. You're right. just like, you know, and I just experienced this personally and I just feel like I'm like in the middle of the ocean. I can't see the land. I have like millions of ideas. Like for this one, before I started working with Rob, I had like eight hours of music or something. Right. And I was you like, had like 10 different versions of each yeah, song. Yeah, and I just, I didn't know like which were the best, better songs. Like I just mm -hmm. didn't, you know, and like, I was questioning everything my manager was saying right, because I because I was like, oh yeah, that's what a manager <laughs> would say. And like, I was questioning everything you would say because yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's what the A&R like, would yeah, say, totally. you know, and you just like get into your head. Right. Made and, the chorus earlier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like, <laughs> but then like Rob came in and he was this kind of like third party removed, you know, in some kind of way uh -huh. where it's sort of like his opinion was, 
I could sort of shoot holes in it less because of where he came from, right. like the records that he's, he'd been involved in. And I just think it's important for any artist to have that. And he was just, he was amazing because we we connected over so many records that like I don't connect with many people over, like um, Prefab Sprouts. Sprouts, Steve McQueen, yeah. Talk Talks, The Colors of Spring. And right. just like, I feel like there's a strain of sort of early 80s, I don't exactly know what to call it, but I like to call it Baroque pop music. Yeah, I'd say like almost like a romanticism. Yeah, it's like this very romantic, like high-minded totally. pop music. It's very, very intelligent pop music. Yeah, and 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 I just was, I've always been really inspired by that, by pop music that is sort of aiming a little bit higher. And right. we really connected on that level. And I feel like he saw what I was trying to do with this record and in, in making it feel natural. You're trying, to make, you're trying to make something great, you know what I mean? As opposed to just kind of trying to make something that hits the charts right now. Yeah. What were some of the songs that he responded to? I'm trying to remember which. which I remember song. some raging debates that happened over China, China Shop. Shop. Yeah, I think China Shop China was the Shop. song. Oh yeah, he loved China Shop. It was just China like, Shop. when does yeah? What's the chorus? What's not the yeah? Chorus? Like, do we bring the chorus back <laughs> right. at the end? Like, mm-hmm. like I always thought the chorus was too wordy to be a chorus, right. and the ooh, yeah, yeah. don't stop. But like, yeah. I thought that was like the chorus. I don't know. I think that, like, he liked that because it was this, like, weird beast conglomeration of, like, so many different influences. Like, Uh um, I talk a lot about that that song was very inspired by, like, PC Music and A.G. Cook and kind of, like, that very kind of fake world where everything's sampled. The Charlie XCX, The Charlie XCX world. Because she Um, works a lot with PC Music, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, like, I I sort of tried to take it back a bit and add live drums and add guitars and stuff like that. So I, I think he saw that I was trying to like make this juxtaposition of like different worlds, which is kind of always what I'm trying to do with every song in a way. So that was the first song. And he, he really understood that, I feel. Yeah, you yeah. Know? He, I like, feel like he really yeah. he saw that. You talk about the prefab sprout thing, and I feel like you can hear that a lot on Next to You, which I know is a big patty. It's only a big patty. <laughs> Everyone's like, it's obviously the big patty favorite, but only because... Other people like that song. <laughs> I know. It's just I like because that song. I just That's made such a, one of my favorite songs. I just songs. made such a biggie out of it. <laughs> There's other songs that are actually... Actually, I think You Should Know Better is my favorite. Really? Out of them all. Okay. Yeah. Just saying That's it here. Yeah. Next to You is definitely new- your favorite. Yeah. But you love You Should Know Better as well. You see? This is... I've been stamped. Next right. to You is Patty's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the Patty Tim. Yeah. You're listening to St. Lucia on the Lost Art of Liner Notes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out St. Lucia's new album, Hyperion, on iTunes or Spotify. I'm not sure when this will come out, but so far we've put two new St. Lucia songs out into the world. Mm -hmm. And one of them being A Brighter Love, 
and the other one being Paradise is Waiting. Which I was fighting against having on the record for a while. A Paradise. Bride of Love. A Bride of Love. You yeah. were. I remember that. Like, but you I kept always coming back and you were like, man, A Bride of Love. You got to try that one. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and I was. You were the culprit that this is this song is on the album, basically. Oh really? Yeah. And I always loved the demo. No, you don't know song. this, but the day, <laughs> one of the days that you came here, I had Jean lying on the bed. It was like so hot. It was another hot day. He was like lying on the bench outside going like, what am I supposed to do? What am I going to do? And I was like, you know, Jean, it's a really good song. You need to chill out and we need to just go. And then you mentioned it again. I was like, it's just going to happen. We just have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> he was, I he was like fighting. No, you he were fighting, fighting that And then, dude, like, like literally the, the record is 90% the original demo. Well, it's a great demo. It's classic that I just have to go through like five different right. versions every time to come right. back to like the initial, I don't know what's Well, wrong. you were like unlike anybody I've ever worked with in the way you would build up songs and then base, your process seemed to be you would put the entire kitchen sink into the song and then start peeling things back. Yeah. I always have John Lennon at the back of my mind yeah. where there's this, there's this quote of his. I can't remember exactly which song it was, but he had this idea to put like a monk's choir in the background in, in some Beatles song. I can't remember which one. And they convinced him not to do it. And ever since then, he's like, keeps, he can, he cannot unhear this monk's choir and wishes that they had it on the record. Uh -huh. And since then his approach was like, just putting every idea on the record that he could. Yeah. So I just like always think that way. And like, and it's true that if I don't try something, it's always going to be nagging at the back of my mind. Like, right. what if we, maybe this thing would take it to, like, the next level, you right. know? And I'm literally doing that until the day the album is mastered. Like, like it just keeps happening, and it's my my curse. Right. Going back to, to Bright Eleven in Paradise, I mean, now that you've had some distance from it, the idea was, in a sense, to put out, I think in your words, that one of them was the sparsest songs you'd ever put out. One of them was the most dense, and that one was Paradise is Waiting. Can yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Paradise is Waiting, it was like, it was just this idea that was kind of revolving in my head for a while. And this is actually how a lot of songs sort of come to me, is like they're just things that appear from nowhere, and they're just there for some reason. And it kind of seemed ridiculous to me in a way, like gospel choir and strings and like this whole kind of shebang. But there's a part of me that always like is attracted to those things that seem like they might be ridiculous or like completely over the top, you yeah. know? Cause like, I'm a little bit like anti-cool in a way. Like I kind of think like the idea of like being cool is like a very limiting idea. And like, I think a lot of the really good music and art and stuff that was made in history was not made from a position of like trying to be cool. It was like just made from like some kind of human impulse. So I always try and like, I don't know, like even that's kind of where the first St. Lucia record came from in a way. It was like I was very inspired by all the guilty pleasures like Phil Collins, like Lionel Richie, like everything that at, at that time was like a very dirty word because somehow it excited me, this idea of like doing something that was almost like in bad taste, you know, but like <laughs> making it good in yeah. a way. 
And that's kind of where like Paradise is Waiting came from is it felt like this like totally over the top thing that most people, if you told them this idea, they'd be like, yeah, no, like you should not do that. That's a bad idea. Uh Um, But I was just like, I'm going to do this. Like Uh it just kept coming back to me Um, and it just kept growing and growing. And I really think it never, it didn't hit its full potential until like the very end. You know, I feel like every version I'd play to people, they'd be like, yeah, this is okay, you know? Like, it just seems, like, weird. Just with Like, it almost thing. needed to be as bombastic as possible. It, it, for it, ha- it just had to go there. It couldn't like, be 75%. Yeah, there. and I kept coming back and being like, oh, okay, well, now that we've done the choir, all we need is strings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now that we've done the strings, all we need is Dave Sardi to mix it. So, I don't know, it just it became this very epic journey of, of a song. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned Dave Sardi. He was kind of a quite the weapon, I think, on the, on the album. Yeah. So, mixing is always like a huge... Every part of the process is like a hu- just a huge thing, always. And mixing especially always seems to be like we go through so many different versions. And, you know, because essentially it is like we go to mixing with all these different things that we still have to sift through where all the things that I give to the mix engineer couldn't possibly make it onto a record with anything being able to be audible. So in the mix, we still have to sift through a bunch of different stuff. And initially we were going to mix, I was going to mix the whole record with Rob who helped me, uh, Rob Curran who helped me finish the record. And we went to LA for a month to like mix the record and we mixed the record, but we both sort of knew at the back of our minds, I think at the end of that, that like the mixes weren't quite up to scratch. Like there just was like something about it that didn't feel quite right. And then, you know, there was some talk of getting a few singles mixed by sort of a more experienced known mix engineer. And I did some thinking with Rob and we realized that we loved a bunch of records that Dave Sardi had mixed. So we just thought we'd take a chance. And it was funny because he was not he would not be an obvious choice in general to like mix a St. Lucia record um, because I feel like a lot of what he does is like very rock and roll. I was going to say his reputation is more of like like a rock guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, in a sense, like I wanted to lend a bit of that to this record. And I think there is a bit of that there. And um, so we sent three songs to Dave. It was Paradise is Waiting, China Shop and Bigger. And he just like slayed it so hard. It was like he added 50% to the songs, basically. Like he came in with this fresh perspective, having not heard anything. What was your reaction when you when you heard the mixes? I mean, I had the same reaction that you did. It just seems like he added a real sort of life to the songs that I don't yeah. want to say it didn't exist before, but it was just like an extra life yeah. that he added to him. And it was, I mean, it, I always knew that the mix process in this record would be pretty interesting because of the number of tracks that existed and the live stuff that existed compared to, you know, a lot of stuff that gets recorded nowadays where it's like, you know, you send the producer can get it, you know, 90% or 95% there and the mixer, you know, they're mixing like a pre-mixed snare or something like that and it's not very exciting. And it's just like, this was always going to be a whole different level would come sort of out of the mix process. And I was floored by what Dave was able to do. It's crazy, man, because like, I feel like my thing is as I'm working, I'm sort of, 
I'm like mixing as I record, mm -hmm. but what I tend to do is I try to make everything sound as like huge and slamming and in your face as possible to try and like make it seem impressive to people that I'm yeah, playing yeah. it for. But I think what that often does is it like sucks the life out of things and it sucks the like nuance out of things. And I think what Rob did is Rob Curran came in and added this like more of like a nuanced kind of thing to it. But then when we tried to mix it, it was almost like it was lacking that bit of like slammingness that I do when I kind of mix things and it became a little too tame. Yeah. And then I think what Dave did is he combined those two worlds like perfectly where it feels a little bit rock and roll, like not overly polished, but there's like nuance and depth to the mixes, but then it's still like energetic and yeah. has life to it. Well, I think that, I mean, the result is, is an album that certainly hits upon a lot of your influences and it's singular, as I said before, and it's expansive and it feels loose and it feels energetic and just a lot of fun. There's just a looseness to it where it sounds like it was a fun record to make and I certainly hope you, you're happy with it. I appreciate um, it, man. I'm, I'm, I couldn't be prouder. It's like, I mean, it's, it always takes a while to kind of really know what, what an album is like once you've finished, you know, it's like, it takes a year or two to fully like get the perspective of what this thing is. But I can't remember who, who this quote was from, but it was someone who said, an artist can know what he wants to make, but he can never know what he has made. So I try to sort of embrace that a little bit, but I, I'm very proud of it. Good. And you had, during the course of this record, I think you'll look back in time and, and you'll remember that, that you had a child yeah. in the middle of it. Your first Actually, child. We, in yeah, the we talked about it earlier. Well, I, think, I, think, I, think, I was highly pregnant when we were recording. And I just remember before we had this lovely AC unit that we got afterwards because I was like, I'm sorry, I can't record. <laughs> yeah, we were just playing here, so... You're here now. And there it's cool because he responds to the songs, the songs I feel. So he, yeah. heard him, he heard him for... Well, <laughs> that's what I like to think. But, <laughs> but yeah, very it's good. cool. Well, thank you guys very thank much. Thank you. Thank you, you Patty. Thank Thanks you. for coming out here and doing this. Huge thanks to St. Lucia and Justin Eshack for being our guests. You can visit stluciaNewYork.com to find out more about their new album, Hyperion, available now. This episode was produced by Lee Stimmel, Mark Grandy, Nicole Heyman, and me, Matthew Billy. Special thanks to Simon Marcus of Pippa and Columbia Records. The Lost Art of Liner Notes is a Rumble Yard production. You can find more episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Rumble Yard is a division of Sony Music Entertainment. For more information, please visit rumbleyard.com. Thanks for listening.